0: Welcome to week two of thinking through this week we will be thinking through the Supreme Court the division in the country during the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh and the recent ruling of the Supreme Court or the recent rulings of the Supreme Court show that there is a tilt a balance of power in the Supreme Court that the rest of the country now sees. The Supreme Court holds a lot of power to basically amend the Constitution as as it sees fit. This means that this position that was previously meant to be for life is now so controversial. The advantage of making it for life was supposed to be that each judge would be independent. They wouldn't have to worry about their next job or getting reconfirmed so they could make decisions based solely on the law rather than on political leanings. The reality is that the way the Supreme Court is situated, the way the Supreme Court is built right now, it would arguably be better to vote justices into power because justices now take positions either towards the left or the right. Even in the present Supreme Court where Most of them were confirmed by conservatives. Their decisions are still done with a consciousness towards the political environment, and that's not good. The interesting thing is that this is not necessary because the power the Supreme Court holds today is what I'll call common law. So if you're not a lawyer or you haven't studied too much about the law, There's common law and there's statutory law. Statutory law is a law that is passed by Congress. And common law is decisions made by the court itself. It's judicial law. So there are things like battery and assault. Those are usually common law, not statutory law. Because they were created by justices over so many years. Initially, the legislature, and even today, the legislature still can't get to every issue. So when the justices get a problem before them, they still have to have a solution to it. Common law is that solution. Now, where the Constitution doesn't write something, where the Constitution hasn't stated something explicitly, and justices make a decision, now it's called um, Dicta. And there's a second name for it now, but it keeps my mind. But it it creates presidential values such that the next case being decided is decided based on previous cases. So every decision becomes sort of law. This is judicial law. This kind of law is accepted in the federal government based on a general agreement that it's the best thing. The source for judicial constitutional law is Marbury versus Madison. Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court decided that it had the power to decide what was law. It made sense at the time, if you think about it, for the Supreme Court to say, to make a judgment on a case, it first has to determine what the law is. If it doesn't determine what the law is, then it cannot make a judgment on the case. The logic was, we will decide what the law is, and then we'll decide on the case, and Other justices, other judges in lower courts, that's the district court and the courts of appeal, will use our decisions to make their decisions in the future. So only the Supreme Court can overturn the Supreme Court's own decision. That's a bite-sized constitutional law lesson right there. The problem is, what has happened over many years is, the balance of power has tilted with the Supreme Court having the sole authority to decide what the constitution says, what is constitutional and what isn't, it gives it power to amend the constitution as it sees fit. It gives it power to create rights, to destroy rights. And the only counter authority lies with the, with the Congress and the rest of the states through an amendment. But amendment, the amendment process is so difficult is so difficult, and that's why both liberals and conservatives prefer to use the courts to make changes rather than go through the amendment process. But it should be the other way around. And I would argue that although Marbury versus Madison made sense when it was decided, it doesn't. There is an alternative theory that makes just as much sense as it does. And would return the balance of power across the system. Now, the strength of the U.S. system is in that balance of power. The U.S. system of government is divided both horizontally and vertically. So you have the federal level, which is the executive, legislative, and the judicial branches. But you also have a balance of power between the federal government and the states. The idea is that the federal government has jurisdiction over certain issues and the states have jurisdiction over others. Where the federal government is unable to act, in a particular case, the the states will be. Part of it is the states have different cultures. They have different ideals. And although many people would argue that It's not the same today. I think it is. If you look at all the cases that divide the country today from abortion to... From abortion to how far civil rights legislation should go. Freedom of contract. Freedom of association. All those things are cultural issues. Up to a point, they are cultural issues. The... Fundamental rights we have are implanted into us as human beings. When you're born, you're born with certain rights. That's why they're inalienable, because it's not the government that gives you the right. A wise government, a competent government, an effective government is one that sees the rights, appreciates and defends them. A government that does not defend the rights given, to every man by god when he is born is a government that's likely to fail that's why you have tyrannical governments being overthrown all over the world for, since the beginning of time up till today any government that does not adhere to the laws of nature and to the laws of god will be overthrown And by the laws of god i mean natural law the principles set on the earth that govern how we interact with each other that includes Equality includes justice. The skills of justice cannot be too, cannot be turned one way for too long because the human condition makes it such that when someone does something to you that you find unjust, you react. That reaction is what rebalances the scale. The idea of society is simply to say, instead of each individual rebalancing the skill for themselves, now we're going as a society to do it because... When emotion comes into play, it's easier for the majority to decide to be tyrannical towards a minority. Mob justice. Right? When, like in certain countries, including mine, there are instances where someone does something. Like I remember a few years ago, there was a case of three guys in a city in Nigeria that were stopped by a mob they were running and some lady was pursuing them and screaming thief 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 so the mob encircled them stopped them put tires around their necks and set them on fire mob justice it turned out later that these kids were not the ones that stole what the lady thought they stole the real thieves had gotten away but these kids were already done the idea of society is to ensure that the right people get the right justice that no one is above the law. Now, a government that runs itself according to those principles is a government that is likely to succeed. A government that ignores them is a government that is likely to be overthrown. Now, the system of government of the United States makes it such that it's more likely to keep those rights protected. In fact, when the Constitution was being written, the federalists did not believe that they needed a Bill of Rights. They believe that the constitution, which is the way the country is formed, would be such that there would be a balance of power. No one person can make a law that will be tyrannical towards others. If the lower house, which is the house of representatives, if the lower house makes an unjust law, by the time it gets to the Senate, it's likely to be struck down. If it doesn't get struck down in the Senate, it's likely to be struck down by the president through a veto. And if the president doesn't strike it down, when it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court or any other court that is adjudicating the case can look at it and decide that that law is not being applied or is not constitutional. I don't believe that the sole power of deciding what's constitutional was supposed to be in the Supreme Court. I don't believe so, because then, you see, if you look at every power on the federal level, it's balanced, right? Like we just spoke about the House and the Senate. The power of the House is balanced by the Senate. The power of the legislative branch itself is balanced by the executive. And the power of the executive is balanced by the legislative house, by the, by the legislative branch, there is nowhere in the federal system where any one branch has a power that, is not, that cannot be balanced by another branch. It's not anywhere. If the president vetoes a law, it can go back to the House and to the Senate. And by a supermajority, they can overthrow or they can override the veto. They can pass the law. So even the veto power of the president has a balance. It was not in the it was not in the original design of the Constitution that the Supreme Court says what the Constitution is. It doesn't even make sense. And here's why it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because the Supreme Court is not the author of the Constitution. The Supreme Court is an enforcer, but that's much like the executive branch. It's it wasn't the author of this of the of the constitution. So how can it be the final speaker on what the constitution is? Now again, it makes sense because when they're deciding a case for that case, they need to decide what the law is. But that is an explicit power given to them by the constitution. Article three of the constitution gives them jurisdiction over cases and controversies. So, they can decide what the law is for the case that they're deciding. And once it's done, by the way, even if there's an amendment, once they decide a case, the case is done. No other branch of government can change the decision in any case. The only thing the president can do is give a pardon. And I think Congress, too, can do that as well. But this failure... This failure is a critical failure in the construction of the country, in the constitution of the country. I think it's a critical failure because now you have these nine members of the Supreme Court who have, amendment, have, who have amended the constitution as they see fit, many times for their own ideological reasons. The balance of power between the states and the federal government has shifted. And if you look at, there are two great instances of this. There's the there's the 11th Amendment and the Commerce Clause. Before I started my federal courts class last, last semester, I thought the Commerce Clause was the most abused clause in the Constitution. But the 11th Amendment takes the cake by far. The 11th Amendment is one of those amendments that the supreme court chooses to ignore when it wishes to and finds a way around it the the way it came about itself is interesting the 11th amendment came after a case where the supreme court decided that the states could be sued by other citizens so if something happened to me and i felt violated i felt my rights were violated by Um, I'm in Massachusetts now, so my rights were evaluated by Florida, for instance. Then I could sue, sue Florida directly. When that happened, two states, Georgia and Massachusetts, were very concerned about this. So they started the process of getting the 11th Amendment passed. Now, there were two options in the 11th Amendment. One of the options is called the Cedric Amendment. The Cedric Amendment suggested that apart from barring other citizens like the the present 11th amendment bars other citizens from bringing suits against another state but it doesn't bar your own citizens from bringing a suit against you it doesn't bar the citizens of a state from bringing suit against their own state the cedric amendment on the other hand which was one of the initial options wanted even your own state to not have the power, or rather, a state to not, a citizen to not have the power to bring suit against their own state. The third commandment was defeated handily. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Hans versus Louisiana got to the Supreme Court, this was Hans, a citizen of Louisiana, who brought suit against his own state. Louisiana appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that Hans, even though he was a member, a citizen of that state, that he could not bring suit against his state. Now, mind you, the 11th Amendment, as it's written, says the complete opposite. The 11th Amendment says that the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity, commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state, or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. So, a citizen of another state cannot bring suit against a state. But it doesn't say anything about citizens of that particular state. In fact, like I mentioned before, it was ex- explicitly stated or explicitly rejected in the third commandment to prohibit a citizen of their own state from bringing suit against their state. But the Supreme Court went around that, ignored it. Now, the interesting thing is that in Osborne versus Bank, the Supreme Court decided that, you know what, there is a way around this. All you need to do is not put the name of the state. So, if I want to sue Massachusetts, I don't and I want to get around the 11th Amendment, all I need to do is choose the name of the official that I want to sue. So, the governor of Massachusetts now is Governor Baker. If I wanted to bring suit against Massachusetts, all I'll do is instead of putting Massachusetts versus Couray. I'll put Baker versus Couray, right? I'll sue the governor instead. And that didn't make any sense. In Ex-Parte Young, another case, they said the rationale was that the state cannot act unconstitutionally. But that makes no sense either. And Justice Harlan, in his dissent, stated that, look, first of all, the suit was brought against The attorney general was the person who was brought against, but was brought against him in his capacity as attorney general, not as an individual. He was working for the state, so you cannot sue him and say you're suing the state, but not really. You're suing him for the way he used the power the state gave to him. He, the state itself, does not have an entity. The state is this imagined being that we've created the real people that have any effect in the system are the people, the individuals, the person acting. But the person acting is not acting in his own capacity. He's acting in capacity as the governor, the attorney general, the mayor, the police chief. So it makes no sense that the state cannot act unconstitutionally it can act unconstitutionally that's why the constitution is writing, restricting the state telling the state you cannot and here's what you can do here's your limit those limits are set by the constitution towards the state not towards the individuals acting on behalf of the state the states have the restrictions if you Now the counter to that was okay if the if another state violated somebody else's rights, then you could bring suit in your own state. So if Florida violated my rights in some way, I could bring suit against them here, where I'm a citizen in Massachusetts. Part of the reason why they didn't want citizens suing other states was because of the liability. Right, if I visited a state and something happened, then you can. Sue, and once you open the floodgates, the states would the states wouldn't be able to afford the lawsuits. States have opened themselves up to lawsuits, though. There are laws in almost every state now that allows you to bring suits against the state if you feel the state has violated your rights in some way. That's a good thing, but the Constitution was written was written in a particular way, and the Supreme Court ignored it. Now, what's the solution? What solution am I um, am I presenting? Marbury versus Madison was the was the deciding case. That said, we have the authority to do this for this reason. The rest of the courts agreed with Marbury versus Madison, Justice Marshall, because it made sense. There was no other way. But there is another way. There's another way. If A bunch of us have a contract. And this is, by the way, another reason why I think the idea of a living constitution is ridiculous. If a bunch of people have a contract for a particular purpose and you go to the courts in a disagreement, it makes no sense that the court then says, you know what? You guys wrote this contract five years ago. Five years ago. This was what the contract meant. Today, the meaning of the word is has changed. So therefore, we're going to use today's meaning of the word is, not yesterday's meaning of the word is. That doesn't make sense because even by regular contract law today, they call it the meeting of the minds, right? You and I negotiate an agreement, and so we sign a contract to that effect. It's what we agreed on that gets judged not the judge's idea of what it should have been. The Constitution was a contract between the states. It was 13 colonies coming together and saying, this is how we wish to be governed. So 13 colonies, or now we have 50 states, should be the final deciders of what the Constitution is. And here's what I mean by that. The Supreme Court still has, and will always have, the final decision on the case, because Article 3 explicitly gives it the power over case, cases and controversy. But the holding, the presidential value that says that other cases that come after this, that is what amends the Constitution, from the Dred Scott cases to other cases. Now, many Supreme Court justices don't want to make decisions against cases that they themselves previously disagreed with the most interesting one is chief justice Roberts, who four years ago disagreed on a particular case wrote a dissent this year a similar case came before him and even though four years ago he wrote a dissent against the decision that the court made he voted in favor of an interpretation based on the decision four years ago the majority decision four years ago not his own dissent so he didn't vote with what he really thought he voted based on the precedence based on the presidential value of the previous case but that's not the job of a judge the job of a judge is not to maintain the decisions that they've made before the job of a judge is to state what the law is according to what the law is written that makes sense again because When a bunch of people write a contract, it makes no sense to interpret the contract based on meanings of the word that you have put by yourself, definitions that you have placed today for them. It makes sense to determine what the meeting of the minds was. What were they trying to decide? What were they trying to contract on? Then you decide based on that. The idea that you change the constitution, you amend the constitution because words have changed or times have changed. It's not the job of the judiciary. It's the job of the legislative branch. So what happens then? If a Supreme, if the Supreme Court makes a decision and the interpretation of, that, of the, that constitutional provision, and this would be or should be restricted to the Constitution, but if the Supreme Court makes a decision interpreting a part of the Constitution, then the state should be able to, by a resolution, overthrow. So you'll have a majority majority of the states voting through their legislative branches resolving to invalidate the presidential value of that decision. So that means that a decision is made, let's say Dred Scott, for instance, a majority of the states would be, by vote, be able to overthrow to invalidate it if it's made based on, for instance, the 14th Amendment, or it's made based on the the First Amendment, a majority of the states should be able to say this is not the agreement that was had. Now, what happens if you have a majority of states that decide that this is what the Constitution says, but we are not going to go with it? We're just going to vote as a majority to say we're invalidating this. Then all the Supreme Court needs to do is not adhered to it in the next decision again. It's a balance of power, just like the other branches are. The legislative balances the judiciary, and the judiciary balances the executive branch. And the same happens within themselves. The Supreme Court would interpret it again in the next case and ask both the state and Congress for a Clear definition through an amendment. That's all. The balance of power is restored. The states wrote the agreement. The states voted on it. The vote. The the states signed the agreement. They understood what they were signing. It is a perversion of justice for one justice to, by their own thoughts and political leaning, change that because they don't agree with what the states agreed. Now, you could argue, however, that there, are, the political system is slow to adjust. There are certain rights that are not yet appreciated by the majority. I would argue, but this is not a constitutional argument. This is a practical argument that when those cases come, then the Supreme Court or Supreme Court justice should still be able to, on a principle of natural law or natural rights, right when a natural law or natural rights is being violated, they should be able to, even if there is no specific provision on a specific case, not a presidential value, but on a specific case, be able to make a decision to provide relief in that specific case. The reason is these are individuals with real lives. So you may say, let's take it back to the legislative branch to debate this, but that specific person would be affected by that negative decision until 10, 20 years later when everyone decides, oh, we should have known better. But that individual at that specific time suffered because society had not yet agreed to certain rights. So the judiciary should be able to do that. But unlike the present legal constitu- constitutional wisdom that the three branches of government should not converse each branch should do its job and through that balance the power of the other branches i don't believe that i believe that through conversation between the branches you get the you get an optimal result By talking, the judiciary can say what's not working because they see these cases every day. They face the human beings that come before them every day. So they can relate to both the executive and the legislative branches what's not working. I had this conversation with my federal courts professor a few months ago, and I think that the system will benefit a lot from it. So in this case, then, if such a case comes before them and they make a decision not based on a specific constitutional provision, but... Again, this would take an amendment for them to be able to do this. They will be able to make this decision to provide relief for this specific person in this specific case based on a universal principle. They should then be able to write an opinion that goes before Congress, not they themselves, but the opinion presented before Congress, submitted to Congress and to the states, the rationale behind their actions. Now, the Supreme Court will probably not do this until there's a unique case. But I think that's when it's warranted. That power is warranted when there is a unique case that needs to be answered, a debate that needs to be had. Rather than have nine justices have the debate and make the decision, it's taken back to the people to decide. But the states, too, can balance the power of the Supreme Court. The ability of the states to resolve this would bring the power back to the people who made the agreement. The writers of the Constitution And the ratifiers of the Constitution were the states and the federal government. The states should be able to invalidate a holding, the presidential value of a holding. Now, there is some precedent for this. When I started doing some research, I realized that although it wasn't a a judicial decision that that was reversed, there was a case where the federal government passed a law. And... The states, two states, voted to voted that law unconstitutional. It was the Alien Sedition Act. It was passed by the federal government, by Congress. And Kentucky and Virginia, through their houses, resolved that the law was unconstitutional. Jefferson and Madison were the governors of both states at the time. They resolved the unconstitutional and it went to the Supreme Court. So there is some precedent, some precedence to this. Although I think that should have gone to the courts first. After it goes to the court, the court can decide on the case since it's a case and controversy. If you have any comments, leave a comment in the comment section or send me an email, thinkingthroughpodcast at gmail.com, and I would respond to any emails I get. If you have any other ideas, send them to me as well. Thank you for listening. See you guys next week. Bye.